Hello, this is Leslie Gorfo Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer, casual conversations on noteworthy legal topics. Over the past few months, artificial intelligence has been at the forefront of the news, and as you can imagine, is raising a plethora of legal issues. One of the premier issues concerning AI is the right of privacy, particularly as it relates to data collection and likeness production. My guest today, Professor Tiffany Lee, has explored the intersection between artificial intelligence and privacy rights and is here to share her insights, her findings, and some of her suggestions for how we proceed going forward. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I am an admirer of your work and you write a lot about privacy and I know you're moving into the idea of artificial intelligence and privacy and those rights. And I do want to start this by saying that I have noticed a shift. I'm a little older than you are. That when I was of a you know young, it was that you had to decide what you wanted to share about yourself. And now it's about you have to decide what you want to hold, keep secret, right? You have to hide things versus releasing them. So it's becoming all the more complicated because of artificial intelligence. So kind of set the stage. What should our fears be? when we deal with artificial intelligence vis-a-vis privacy? I think there are a number of things we can concern ourselves with when thinking about AI and privacy. So the first is the fact that there's just so much data collected about all of us all the time right now. So we have so many privacy invasions pretty much every day of our lives. And AI just makes all the privacy harms worse. AI means it's easier to invade someone's privacy You know, it's easier to create, for example, a deep fake depicting somebody. It's easier to crack a password with AI. But also AI creates some unique privacy issues. For example, the fact that the data you use to train AI could include private data. Now, we don't have very good remedies for that in the law. So I'm going to actually, let's take two steps back because you raise already interesting issues. But the first is just... um, to remind readers, and you kind of pointed this out before we we recorded, that the way AI works is that these machines are um, trained on data, right? So it's people feed the data, and the more they're trained, the more they know. So, but how how can you create a deep fake, and how can you breach someone's privacy through um, AI? Uh, th- these are good questions. So how do you create a deep fake? Um, I think in the past, it was a lot harder, right? You had to actually have some knowledge of at least graphic design, if not software engineering. But nowadays, there are so many generative AI tools. You can basically put in any prompt. So you want to see you know, Barack Obama riding a unicorn at sunset. Um, and you can get an image that looks like that. And that's yeah. very easy. So imagine the privacy issues. The, I mean. Obama is a public figure, but you can do that with anybody who Mm. we have a photo of. I think there's a privacy invasion there, and it's a little bit complicated because it's not quite um, using a real photo. There aren't quite copyright issues. Maybe there might be defamation issues. Maybe there are privacy torts at play. If there's harassment or so on, you could even get into the criminal realm. So, but that's interesting. So I, I think I, I wrote an article about AI and defamation. And one of the big issues is who are you going to sue, right? Exactly. So do you think you can sue the people that fed the information? Or do you think you can sue the owners of ChatGBT or Bing or any of those? I think it's tough. 
So, I mean, you know, the owners of ChatGPT and Bing and so on, uh, many of these platforms will be protected by Section 230. Right. There is an argument that generative AI tools should also fall under Section 230 protection. Um, Jess Myers and others have raised this. I'm not sure I completely buy that. But certainly the websites, right? That's a classic Section 230 case, right? right. The websites probably have immunity, uh, depending on what they're doing. Okay, so if you can't sue, you know, ChatGPT, if you can't sue the website, um, can you even find the user who's creating the images? It's always the issue with these online content harms, right? It's hard to find the person. Uh, people might be anonymous. They might be using various types of VPNs and browsers and so on. If you can't find the person who's doing that, can you find the person who designed the software? So I'm sure you went over this in your article too, but it's just tough, right? It's yeah. hard for anybody. And then the average person doesn't have the time or resources to do this search either. Right. It's like if you give a mouse a cookie, <laughs> it goes out. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting about, so so Section 230 basically was created in 1996. And the purpose was to give immunity to internet computer services, because the idea was that the internet was new and we didn't want the Googles, well, then the AOLs of the world to have to spend their time defending lawsuits. It was going to prohibit growth, right? And if you look at the... Um, legislative history or legislative policy of section 230 it's like this great thing it's going to be a diversity of ideas and so eventually courts said well webmd could be an internet computer service and twitter but i feel like and this is i'd love to hear your opinion i feel that ai is different because Unlike these other services that are platforms for you and I to chat, right? Like I found you because I love your to follow you on Twitter. I think you're really interesting on Twitter. And so I found you through Twitter. That's clearly a social media site. But in AI, I'm not interacting with anyone. I mean, unless I'm interacting with the people who are feeding it, right? So could you argue that these AI sites are not interactive computer services? I think I'd buy that. I also am a little skeptical of the claim that an AI generating tool should qualify as an ICS. I don't really see it. Um, it doesn't really work with, as you mentioned, the spirit of the law, right? Is this an interaction of any kind? In a way, maybe you're interacting with the, uh, the tool that someone else designed when you put in a prompt. And maybe if it's a website, it's a platform where you can create and host these images. Maybe there's some social act interaction, but then that gets the website part of it again. Now we're still talking about the website, the AI tool itself. I don't think that should fall under section 230 protection. All right, I, I, I think you make a cogent article. So let's get back to the whole idea of privacy. I can't protect what is already out there that's being fed about me into AI, right? Or can I? Another really difficult question. <laughs> That's why <Yep>. we're here. <laughs> right. What do you do with this data? So I wrote an article last year called Algorithmic Destruction in the SMU Law Review. And this article talks about that exact problem. So algorithmic destruction describes this really new remedy or maybe a new enforcement tool and perhaps a new right that people have for that exact situation. And the basic concept is that sometimes a company or an organization 
will create an AI tool and they will use a ton of data to train that model that they're using in their tool. Um, and then they'll release that out there. At some point, you as an individual might find that your data has been improperly collected by the person who created that tool. And your data has been used to train the AI model. I think that's a privacy invasion, right? I think, you know, improper collecting of data, improper use of data, those are privacy invasions. And classically, at least right now in the law, a lot of our remedies for privacy invasions relate to deletion. But that doesn't really work for AI, at least for machine learning. Because if you've already used the data to train an AI, and then you delete the data from the initial training data set, that doesn't affect the AI that's already been created. So my argument is that we should look to algorithmic destruction. This remedy of actually asking the companies or the organizations to delete whatever AI they produced using the misbegotten data. And I think that can protect privacy better. That's interesting because you can't untrain I mean, can you untrain an AI? I should, I don't know the answer to that. Actually, you can. Oh. Uh, it's called machine unlearning. Um, and it's actually been really fun. I've been writing about this topic a little bit since 2017. And the feedback I've gotten from lawyers and law professors has been, oh, this sounds way too hard, right? It's difficult. Until very recently, the F when the FTC started actually enforcing this remedy, people didn't think it should be a thing that happens. On the other hand, my feedback from computer scientists has generally been, yeah, that makes sense. We can do this. We have technical ways actually to roll back the training of hmm. a machine learning model. And here are the, exactly the ways we can do it. Here are the ways we can design the model in the first place. So we have sort of benchmarks for when data was added. So machine learning does exist. And apparently it is doable. So that's interesting. So let me ask you this. If we can untrain AI, right? Right now, the government is considering and those who are biggest, you know, run kind of the biggest AI platforms are, are saying we need to regulate it because we see from social media law, we made a big mistake by not regulating it at all. Do you think we should regulate AI? And if so, is there a way to do it? Because I don't think there's a way to regulate social media anymore. I think the cat's out of the bag. So. What do you think about AI? I actually have an in-progress paper about AI regulation. Oh. Um, and I look at this. Yeah, it's an interesting work. Um, in my very biased opinion, I think mm -hmm. it's an interesting topic. So I compare AI regulations as they exist in the US, the EU, and China. So with the caveat that in a lot of these sectors, there is no AI regulation. So for the US, I'm looking at policy documents the NIST standards and so on. Um, in the EU, I'm looking at the Draft AI Act, which doesn't fully exist yet. Uh, and my overall conclusion is I'm not quite sure we know what AI is, or I'm not sure policymakers know what AI is enough that they can create good policy around it. Hmm. So I do think we should regulate AI, um, but not necessarily through specific AI regulations, AI laws. Um, but rather, we have so many other laws that get to things we care about with AI. We don't even have a national privacy law. Why don't we start with that? That's what I was going to ask you. I was going to say, do you think we should create privacy laws? So what would your national privacy law look like? I think it would include a lot of the elements that we see in, for example, the GDPR from Europe or the California privacy law. I think that the CCPA is probably a better model for the U.S. nationally than the GDPR. 
Um, there's been some good work about why that is, um, why the California privacy law takes a lot of the elements of the European law, but adapts it better to the US. So we can think about this um, and do some sort of combination of the best of all the models we see. Ideally, we're going to have some measures on AI. So something about the models that were trained on misbegotten data, something about the use of AI to commit privacy harms. Ideally, we'll have special biometric protections, special protections for vulnerable people, uh, like children, for example. So I think there's a lot that can be done, but I think we already have really good models out there. So many other countries, other regions have privacy laws that we can look at, um, and we are definitely behind internationally. Hmm. And I think it's going to be tough to pass it. I mean, you know, it's interesting. You talk about children. One of the biggest issues with AI is this idea of artificial intelligence, child pornography, because the whole purpose behind child pornography is to protect the victim. But if in AI, arguably there's no victim, right? I think it depends. So I can imagine, you know, one of these generative AI tools, if they use pictures of real children in the training data, and then someone decides to use that tool to generate an image that is related to child sexual abuse, there might still be some harm to the pictures of the children who were you know, put into that uh, data set. But my algorithmic destruction article also argues that there's some harm to anybody's photo who was using that data set. I don't wanna be part, I don't want my face or my image to be part of an AI generating tool or AI generating platform that creates child sexual abuse images. I think there's some sort of emotional or psychological harm with knowing that parts of yourself have been used uh, for a crime or for something that is just really terrible. And I'm not sure we've really dealt with that or what that means yet. But you raise like a really important point, which is the training data is part of the creation. And the training data has to be based, at least as you can correct me if I'm wrong, on real people when you're talking about generating images of humans, right? At some point down the line. And uh, now we have this issue where AI is being trained on AI generated content. So it's just getting worse and worse in some oh cases. God. But it's at some point down the line, there probably was a photo of a human in there. I mean, that had to be somewhere, right? We went, yeah. Uh, right. So, yeah. So, so maybe, yeah. So that's, you know, it's so interesting because in my article, I talk about the individuals who feed the data. So like, you know, the people who are making $16 an hour just kind of going, <laughs> you know, and, and you can only get them under the doctrine of race ipsa loquitur, right? They work, you know, for someone else. But your point is well taken, that there's always, at least now, a human behind this stuff evolving, right? So what other privacy issues scare you when it comes to AI? Ooh, there are so many. Oh, with AI or just generally? Yeah, well, so just privacy issues. <laughs> Both. It's funny. I think a lot of people who write about privacy, we all have different levels of privacy I don't know, paranoia or anxiety in our own lives. I use a lot of technology. I use a lot of social media. I've used generative AI tools. I mean, I write about privacy because I want all of these tools to be better. Right. Um, I'm not scared per se, but I do see harms that I think we should be addressing. And that's what's great about law. 
for any law students, if any law students are listening, I think that's what's great about being a lawyer. You can really fix some of these problems with law. Right. So let's, so give me one example of a law that you wish were on the books. Let's see. What do I wish was on the books? Well, I do think that we should do something about non-consensual intimate imagery. So revenge porn um, is what, okay. you know, we used to call right. it a lot, but it's not always that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it could be AI generated images of a real person put in a sexual context. Um, and as we talked about, there's not really a good way to get recourse if you are the subject of a photo or a video. Um, and this has happened to a lot of real people. Mm-hmm. People can, sometimes you can say, maybe you can claim harassment, right. but again, it's hard, right? Um, this sort of sharing of non-consensual sharing of intimate imagery, real or fake, um, is a crime in some states, not all. There's a civil action in some states, not all. So that's something I think is, I, I feel a pretty easy win for policymakers. I don't think most people are on the side of the people creating this content. Um, the issue, of course, is that any law about this has to be super narrowly tailored because otherwise, right, the First Amendment concerns pop up right, immediately. Right, um, right. But I do think that of the kinds of content we could possibly uh, be trying to regulate out there, this is one of those kinds of content that probably falls into less protectable speech. That's interesting. But, you know, I, I and I really do not have a deviant mind, but I'm thinking of post what if i were posting a real picture of you right and i use photoshop to change so that now you only have three fingers on either hand right (laughs) like that Ooh, right Uh, so like can i now say well i didn't post you i posted a ai generated vision of someone who looks like you like can i use photoshop as a defense to what is really a crime right now, which is reposting you without your your likeness, without your permission. I think that would depend on how close the photo would be and the intention in creating the photo. I'm just thinking about this hypothetical law, right? I can see someone saying, well, I didn't post this specific celebrity. Um, I just asked the AI to generate um, an image of a person of exactly this height and weight, hair color, eye color, you know, specifications for face. I didn't ask them. I didn't put the name of the celebrity in there, right? I just kept doing that until I got a picture that looked like the celebrity. And that's interesting because maybe then you can say, well, they didn't create an image that, but they didn't try to use, abuse the image of the celebrity. Um, They didn't even use the name of the celebrity in the prompt. Um, I think that could be an interesting, probably jury-based factual decision to make at the end, right? Did they actually create yeah, yeah, an image yeah, yeah. that yeah. depicted so-and-so? Right. Interesting. So fascinating. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience before we say goodbye? Hmm. I never know how to answer these questions. There's so many things, right? We're law professors. We can talk forever. Ever. Uh, <laughs> yes, definitely forever. Not too much to share. I, I taught AI law over the summer. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend if any students are out there, I think it's a really fun topic to read up on. I don't think that many schools teach AI law. Um, We do at USF, but a number of other schools do. But if you take privacy law, technology law, even in, I would say, a lot of IP law courses, you're going to get something about AI. 
Right. I'm sure you teach some about AI in your courses. Too. I do. You know, it's, I teach social media law. And it's interesting that you say that because I have a, this year, my syllabus, I have an AI section, but AI is not social media. They're both technology, but they're not really social media. So I'm, I struggle with whether to even include it. I do agree mm. with you. Um, I think it's important that students understand AI. It is not going away. And I think that we have to embrace it and figure out how to fairly live with it rather than discard it. Um, I'm going to post your articles. So speaking about students learning about AI, your articles are fabulous. Um, and I'm going to post them in the liner notes. I really, this has been really interesting and fun for me, particularly because I know a little bit about this too. <laughs> now I'm not as schooled as you, but thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate chatting with you. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day. This podcast was created in collaboration with West Academic. Additional episodes can be found on the West Academic Study Aids Collection. Students may already have access through their school subscription and can check with their law school library for access. For a limited time, Legal Tensor listeners can save 15% on titles on the West Academic Store with the promo code TENSOR15 at checkout.